0: welcome to Frock Flicks. This is the first episode of a podcast dedicated to costuming in the movies. This is uh, a bunch of friends who like costuming and who are going to alternately rip into and praise the heck out of Hollywood's attempts at historical costuming on film. So first we're going to introduce our original Broadway recording cast. (laughs)
1: My name is Sarah Lorraine, and I maintain the website modehistorique.com. My primary interests in the costuming world are 16th century English, and I've done everything from 14th century to 1920s at this point, Uh, but my favorite's definitely 16th century.
2: My name is Kendra Van Cleve, and I'm the proprietess of DemoDeCouture.com. Um, I'm the president of the Greater Bay Area Costumers Guild, and I have um, done everything pretty much from 16th century up through about 1950s. Um, my real interests are 18th century and um, bustle era, performed at Dickens and Renaissance fairs. Um, and both Sarah and I are primarily historical costumers, and our focus really is uh, primarily on historical accuracy, so that's sort of our approach to costuming.
0: Whereas, your host here, Tristan L. Bass, uh, also known as the Gothic Martha Stewart, has a a slightly different background. I'm more interested in uh, the theatrical side of costuming. I've done historical costume, I've uh, participated in Renaissance fairs, and I've attended uh, Victorian events. I've collected vintage costume or vintage clothing, but um, I definitely appreciate the theatrical side, fantasy and science fiction even. So uh, I think we have kind of all our bases covered here, so we plan to give a fair and balanced podcast opinion on uh, costume in the movies. So this is kind of a freewheeling attack on the movies and costume, and our first subject is Marie Antoinette, the movie from 2006, directed by Sofia Coppola, starring Kirsten Dunst as the title character. And we're just going to start with a little background on the director's uh, vision for the movie and the costume designer uh, herself. And I think Kendra's going to give us a little background information.
2: And Tristan's going to help me fill in. Um, So the movie, again, was directed by Sofia Coppola, and she sees this movie as the third um, in a trilogy between The Virgin Suicides and Lost in Translation, which is very interesting because those are obviously very sort of modern, maybe even postmodern movies. Um, she was very interested in Marie Antoinette and in fact wrote Lost in Translation when she was stuck working on Marie Antoinette, um, so that was kind of a little sort of, she got distracted and then came back around to it. Um, and she, uh, a couple of things that uh, I found interesting that she said about the movie, she said that she really wanted to make an emotional portrait and an intimate portrait of Marie Antoinette. Um, she was really interested in the fact that both Louis um, the Sixteenth, I believe, right, and Marie were teenagers. Um, and um, she that she really wasn't. So their, their youth was particularly of interest to her. And she said that she didn't really want to correct misperceptions about Marie Antoinette, although we can get into that, um, but that she wanted to tell the story from her point of view, um, particularly a girl's point of view and a young girl's point of view. Um, She's also said that she didn't want to get bogged down in history, but to focus on the personal relations between these people. Her quote, she says, Louis wouldn't sleep with her, so she wanted to go out and party, like someone in a bad marriage going shopping. It just seemed like the same old story. The costumes were designed by Milena Canonero, and she is uh, an Italian um, costume designer. She was born in northern Italy. She studied art and costume design in Genoa and London, and she really got her start as a costume designer when she met Stanley Kubrick, and he asked her to design for A Clockwork Orange. Um, She's done a number of really amazing costumes. Um, She's won Oscars for Marie Antoinette, also Chariots of Fire, and Barry Lyndon. And she was nominated for Oscars for Affair of the Necklace, Titus, Dick Tracy, Tucker, the man and his dream, which I have never heard of. Oh, it's um, actually
0: it's a I believe '30s movie. Oh, okay. Um, it was about uh, this guy who invented a very advanced uh, motor car. uh piece, though.
2: Yeah, and also nominated for Out of Africa. Um, She's won Costume Designers Guild Awards, she's won the Career Achievement Award in 2001, Um, she won for Contemporary Film for The Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, and she was nominated in Period Film for Marie Antoinette and Contemporary Film in Oceans 12. Um, She uh, talks about, Melina Canonero talks about wanting to make the costumes believable. So, as she put it, so that doesn't take you out of the story. But she also was interested in making it appealing. She says, I'm not a fetishist about historical accuracy. Kind of funny. (laughs) Sarah and I laugh here. Uh, She says, I'm just like making it my thing. Um, uh, Also... In terms of uh, designing the costumes, obviously, Sofia Coppola was very much um, I- included, and she talks about wanting to choose um, colors um, that really reflect um, French pastries, light colors, hot pinks, yellows, uh, golds, pistachio greens. Um, it's interesting, but she talks about the fact that that, or she infers that that's not necessarily historically accurate, um, although, uh, we, again, we can get into that later, Um so they, uh, they made most of the costumes themselves, although they did rent some things, um, like such as uh, uniforms and that sort of thing. Um, fabrics came from all over Europe, uh, France, England, Italy, and Germany. Um, corsets made in Prague, copied from originals. Uh, they used vintage laces. So definitely a huge amount of work, um, obviously, which you can see on the screen, went into this um, costume. Um, Manolo Blahnik, who is a modern shoe designer, uh, did all the footwear and, um, they asked him to sort of, they gave him a lot of research and gave him a palette, but also, um, asked him to surprise them. So you can see, um, when you, the, the, the shoes are definitely sort of an amalgam between a historical style and a very modern style. In fact, there's a pair of Chuck Taylor Converse in there. Um a couple of other choices that they used such as um, not using much embroidery and that sort of thing they were trying very hard to avoid making Marie Antoinette look matronly um, and uh, so they used light fabrics like organza, tulle, uh, netting, frills um, uh, to make her look very young and fresh.
0: Uh, you mentioned the colors and there's this great quote from the production designer K.K. Barrett um, who's talking about Coppola's reference book that she put together with those Pastry colors, the maroon colors, uh, or macaroon colors, sorry. Uh, Mint greens and magentas and canary yellows uh, instead of the royal blues and burgundies that you'd expect, recalls Barrett. Uh, He says that they made a decision to stay away from all browns and beiges to avoid the cliche of sepia, a cliche of sepia that says, you're in another time. We wanted it to feel like we were photographing in Marie Antoinette's world, that we happened to be able to document it before it all faded with time the idea is that you're really there with an immediacy and youthful vitality. And I think that really is true. That really carries through those bright, bright colors, uh, not, the, not faded things like you see in dusty old portraits. Um, you really get that, that feeling in a lot of, in a lot of these, in the, in the, both in the costume specifically and in the whole production design overall. I think that really carries through.
2: I think one thing that's important to mention is that they actually did f- film at Versailles, which is pretty amazing. But, yeah, you know, They weren't trying to recreate a set anywhere or filming in Czechoslovakia or anything like that, or Czech Republic, excuse me. Um, but they were actually filming at The Real Deal, and that definitely translated. And that
0: was the first movie that's had that much access. And that was all because the, uh, the caretaker at Versailles loved Lost in Translation. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so it, it pays to uh, have made a good movie beforehand. Um, there's another quote. Uh, this is actually from uh, the, the costume designer. Uh, she said that Sophia wanted a richness and a freshness for Marie Antoinette, um, and the clothes need to show the evolution from a very young girl to a sophisticated woman. Um, and So they they showed that both through the colors and through the designs overall. Um, and again, they're not 100% period, but they have that kind of feeling is what the designer is, is saying. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's a lot of really good information actually on the uh, behind the scenes making of featurette that's on the DVD where with uh, the designer the the costume designer and the production designer as well and a little bit from Sophia herself who are also are all talking about their what they um, what they had in mind really and the, the comments about the pastry colors mm-hmm. they show that they that, that comes through uh, in, in all of that, that featurette.
1: If anything, this movie is going to make you crave fondant like nothing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to gain some weight just while yeah. watching it. Um, and this, this is kind of just a little segue into one of my favorite things, and one of the things that a lot of people actually hated about this movie. I want candy. Mm. And not just literal candy, but the song mm-hmm. by Bow Wow Wow. Um, I'm just going to kind of jump in here and start talking about the movie itself because we've got a little background here already about the designs and what uh, Coppola was going for. Um, One of the big criticisms of this movie was how Coppola used uh, modern 20th century and 21st century music, colors, pop culture, iconography in a historical movie. In a, in a historical period, and that really pissed off a lot of people. Um, I remember when the, the trailer first came out, um, friends who aren't even into historical costume forwarded it to me and said, oh my god, I can't believe this, you've got to see this. They were pissed off by how can you, they, they be using this music that we love in this historical movie? What That's crazy, They're, you know. Um, and then, of course, co- historical costumers were pissed off because how, how dare they, you know use history with, you know, punk pop music. So, um want we'll to talk a little bit about that? Uh, some of those perceptions of the mixing and the matching. Mm-hmm.
2: I'll say when I saw the preview, I definitely thought, "Whoa!" Mm-hmm. But I, I didn't think I was going to hate it. But I certainly it, it created a big question mark for me, and I said, "Am I going to love this or am I going to hate this?" And I have to admit that I'm not particularly, or I hadn't previously particularly been into post punk. Um, in fact, I got in trouble with my husband when I asked him to download the uh, soundtrack for me because he said, "But you didn't like it originally when it came out." Well, now I like okay. it. Um, I think the music really works. Shockingly, works and. Because it, it conveys that sense of youthfulness, that sense of a brat pack, that sense of, of the sort of Hollywood celebrities running around, getting drunk uh, at the clubs, all those sorts of things. Um, and then at the same time, so much of it is beautifully melancholy in a lot of the, the scenes uh, later in the film when things aren't going quite so well. Some beautifully sad, really sort of um, heart-stirring pieces. Um, and, and I think it just meshes beautifully.
0: And Sarah, I know you've mentioned you like some of the songs how they how oh yeah fit
1: uh, the scenes too. Big fan of the Cure. So <laughs> got my thumbs up there. Um when I first saw the uh, the trailer, um I did not initially see this movie on the big screen. Uh and so when I came to it and finally did watch it, um I realized that my reactions based on the, the trailer had been pretty negative. And uh, many of you may remember this from a blog posting I did at the time that the trailer came out. Um, and I, I tore into the movie based upon that trailer saying, you know, yeah, it looks pretty and, you know, whatever. But the uh, the music, it's, it's kind of a I wouldn't go so far as saying a travesty, although I might have said that at the time, <laughs> but that it just, it seemed like a very odd juxtaposition for me. Um, it jarred me a little bit because I am one of these people that has very strong opinions about historical accuracy. So when I finally was able to watch the movie and I realized that there was this vision that Sofia Coppola was aiming at, um, and I caught the, the cultural references to things like 16 Candles and, you know, a lot of the, the Brat Pack movies that came out in the 80s, uh, it, it made sense that it, this was sort of her homage to the generation that she grew up in. So on that level, I thought it worked really well. I really enjoyed it.
0: Yeah, and the more I think about it, and you know, realizing that Sophia Coppola is she's about my age. You know, she was born in '71. I was born in '69. Uh, we both grew up with this music the first time around, and it it so evokes. The era, the 1980s. There's so much of it that is so similar to what Marie Antoinette was actually dealing with in Versailles. Um, she had this sense of isolation and um, this kind of decadence, and this it was the the you know "greed is good" generation was the 80s. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's so much of that going on there. And I think putting the music and some of those colors and throwing in the Chuck Taylors, <laughs> um, it draws on that and it and it. Emphasizes uh, what's going on in those characters' heads, and in all of Coppola's quotes uh, in, in the you know production featurette and, and interviews, she talks about how there's these these they're teenagers, they're teenagers growing up in this strange isolated bubble, and so I kind of wonder how much of this was really her life. Mm-hmm. You know, she's kind of a privileged girl growing up in the '80s, and it reminds me of you know, of those movies, the Brad Pack movies, the Molly Ringwald, oh. and um, and, the, and also the, the music specifically, too. You know, in the film credits, she actually, along with giving thanks to um, her dad and her brother and a couple of friends, there's like five credits, she gives thanks to Malcolm McLaurin, who was the punk pop music impresario who, he created the Sex Pistols, he managed um, Bow Wow Wow and Adam Ant, Uh, With Vivian Westwood, he created um, the influential London fashion boutique called Sex in the late 70s and early 80s. So he was huge in the music and fashion scene in the late 70s and early 80s that created this whole new romantic vibe, which was deeply inspired by 18th century fashion. So there's this whole cyclical thing going on here that um, she's tapping into, and it shows up, in Marie Antoinette, in the movie?
1: I would definitely say it's a pretty autobiographical movie. Um, if, if it's not flat-out autobiographical, I would say it, it's very near and dear to her heart. It's mm-hmm. definitely, um, I used the word previously, homage. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's a personal um, statement, I believe, about her own you know experiences
2: growing up as a privileged, rich kid in the 80s and, and the culture that she came from. Um, There's so, an interesting um, quote by Kirsten Dunst where she's talking about Um, how Marie Antoinette, she really was a figure at Versailles, not really a human being. And it would be hard for anybody to grow up and find their identity when it feels like everyone is against you. I mean, where's there room to grow in this prison of Versailles? So, linking back, not so much to the music, but again, that's evoking that sense of frustration. And I think we need to not only make the link with, you know, fashion in the decade of the 80s, but also punk and post-punk was completely, it was a youth movement, it was a revolution against everything that was going on, it was a sense of uh, disenfranchisement, of disaffection from society, all those sorts of things. So I think that that also brings in that sort of link.
0: Definitely, definitely. And which reminds me of um, the colors. So, you know, putting in hot pink, pro, con, historical, not... Is it just a punk fascination? I didn't find it jarring at all.
1: I, you know, and I watched on the film. I didn't at any point think that was out of place for the era. Um, you know, obviously, Annaline dies hadn't been created yet, etc. But I think in terms of the film, the vividness of the the pastel landscape that she creates, the pink worked. <laughs>
2: well, thinking about you know. Boucher paintings, the mm-hmm. pink and the green and the exactly. girl hanging off the swing the and all those yeah. kinds of things, <laughs> yeah. you know? yeah. I mean, it was certainly, uh-huh. it was definitely, it was a hot pink, and it, and it's certainly, I don't think, a historically accurate color. Um, and I will say that the dresses that were the hot pink might have been the ones that appealed to me the least. But they didn't mm-hmm. bug me. And I actually mm-hmm. feel like, in a way, what we need to do is back up a step and talk about the fact that this is a film that has a very strong artistic vision from the director. She was not trying to make a documentary about Marie Antoinette. She was trying to understand Marie Antoinette's experience and Marie Antoinette's sort of fundamental character in a way that was relatable to the modern era. And she was also trying to make a very specific artistic statement. She wasn't, you know, so I think, you know, the hot pink, all those kinds of things, I could accept because it wasn't like, oh, it's historically accurate, it's historically accurate, and then suddenly, yeah, where did the bright pink come from? I was expecting those sorts of things by that point. One thing that I think
1: uh, a lot about that is that when you get um, directors, and this is something that comes up a lot in, in historical films, is they, they take a piece of, of uh, history and then they, they have this vision that they want to kind of cram it into. And it sometimes doesn't work because they try to de- deconstruct the historical aspect of it so much to make it more relatable to modern audiences. Um, I, you know, And I see that, that this movie had the potential to do that. It didn't. I mean... You, we stuck with the the rigid stays. They had the right silhouette. They had the right underwear. They had the right overwear, and there were little things that she inserted that were kind of, you know, they were they were a little bit out of place, like the Converse or the the hot pink. Um, but overall, they were subtle. It was it was a very kind of. I wouldn't want to say kind of like a, a jab, you know, but it was right. definitely and a sprinkling. It wasn't a, a, oh, look, they're running around in deconstructed 18th century costumes that are vaguely historically accurate because the director's vision is, you know, to, to show the deconstruction of human civilization. Or generally because
2: the, the director doesn't have a vision and they're an idiot. <laughs> yeah. So here's right. this fine movie, and right. then suddenly you're yeah. like, what the hell is that person wearing? Right. So I think because they were conscious choices, mm-hmm. I like them better than just a film where you can tell they just didn't know what the hell they were doing. Right. right.
0: And some of them, like The convert Of course, were Mm -hmm. a purposefully done cheeky exactly, and they were so fast though. It's like you almost have to go wait. You have to look for that. Yeah, back it
1: up and and pause. Oh, there's converse there. I didn't catch it the first time. I I did
0: (laughs) because I knew to look for it. (laughs) I had heard about it and I was looking. I was Jones. Oh, oh, where is it? Where is it? Oh, there it is. Yes. (laughs) You know, I mean that's almost like an an Easter egg in a a Mm -hmm. computer program. Um, exactly, and, and I think though that really was a that was a nod to people, you know, like me who mm-hmm. are gonna get those references because we have something in common with the director and her ideas, right. you know, her, her vision. Again, going back with that right. 80s thing really.
1: And and Kendra mentioned that um, you know, that it was intentional. These things were very intentionally Definitely. placed. And I know when I was going through design school, if you didn't do something with intention, it was automatically picked up as being gratuitous Mm -hmm. and so or or disingenuous and so that's what i really think that subtlety and that intention and everything is is very carefully thought out i really really appreciated that in this film and as a historical costumer was able able to overcome my own stick up the ass (laughs) 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 about historical accuracy there you you heard it from me folks
0: (laughs) (laughs) um were there any um Particular costumes that really, or scenes that really stuck out uh, for good or for bad in in your minds.
1: Uh, the hairstyles. Um, you know, when we were watching it and we kind of were discussing the hairstyles a little bit, uh, the, the stylist, and this is something that nobody, uh, none of us really looked into, but the, the stylist for the movie um, got the early hairstyles really well and the later hairstyles, the hedgehog hairstyles, really well. But those, you know, big towering poof hairstyles were just... They didn't look right to me. And I understand that there, but the Marge Simpson thing that she had going on with her very first towering hairstyle, and she could barely keep it up. And I mean, maybe it was really like that, but that to me was kind of, it, it jarred me a little
2: bit. I and- think. Of course, if you look at any actual mm-hmm. historical right. sources, that's not the shape. The shape is sort of a, I would say, like an upside down triangle. I mean, obviously with rounded edges and sort of things, but or kind of it kind of V's right. up away from the the sides of the face mm-hmm. and then flattens out some on top. Right. Um, and it just didn't seem necessary to me. So yeah, it did look a bit bar- marge simpson yeah.
0: <laughs> One one thing that um, I noticed in the behind the scenes piece was that. With particularly with Kirsten Dunst's hair, they wanted to use more of her hair mm-hmm. and and give her a more natural look. So they actually avoided using. They didn't. They tried to avoid using as much of the the really tall hair, um, which is probably why they didn't get it very right. Yeah. I, I kind of think okay. because they weren't really concentrating on it that much, mm, right? Um, and they didn't didn't want to do that because they wanted to make her look, you know, kind of natural mm-hmm. and kind of. Um, blonde. They really wanted her to look very blonde in the whole movie. Um, it was funny because actually um, Antonia Fraser, who wrote uh, the biography that this movie is at least partially inspired by. Um, Marie Antoinette Journey. Which we'll get to it later <laughs> as well. Um, really thought the casting was perfect. Thought that uh, Kirsten Dunst was had the perfect face <laughs> for Marie Antoinette. She's perfect, a- uh, uh, bone the structure long neck. and, and that face that she's a little too
2: pretty I'll give her she yeah, needs yeah. she, she uh, Marie Antoinette specifically <laughs> had a, a Habsburg nose yes. that was a little bit beaky <laughs> yeah. and she had a little <laughs> bit of sort of a jutting chin mm-hmm. and apparently it gave her a very sort of snooty look even though she wasn't actually a very snooty person so I'll say I I do think it was fabulous yeah. casting and worked really well I'm, I love Jason Schwartzman. I just got to say that. Yeah, I got to represent with that.
0: <laughs> I, I thought he was very, did a fine job as Louis. I really, was I really adorable. do. He made Louis, to me, a much more human. understandable character. Yeah, human. Mm-hmm. Because uh, reading through the biographies and reading through the histories, I just don't get that guy.
2: Well, See, I disagree. Um, and I love Jason Schwartzman, and I love the character on film, but I did not think he was Louis. Louis was much more bumbling, much more inept, um, he was obese, as was his younger brother, he did have a third younger brother who was supposedly pretty hot, although I'm guessing in comparison anyone would have been hot, um, and I think that watching him in the movie, although I was very charmed by him, and you've got the boyishness and the inexperience and all those sorts of things, but it didn't bring home to me why he wasn't, for example, able to consummate the marriage, those sorts of things, because he wasn't sort of bumbling enough and he wasn't out of it enough, if that makes sense. He was a little too cute, uh, I think. A yeah. little too to functional. Um, no,
0: Schwartzman, functional. though, because he did uh, gain 45 pounds oh. for the role um, To because Louis was much more plump than Schwartzman is. And he says on in an interview that he asked the costume designer to make his clothes extra small oh. um, because he wanted the character to be uncomfortable um, or because he wanted to feel uncomfortable, to feel physically uncomfortable, um... So he could better get into the role. And,
2: and and that does really translate. I mean he he has that awkwardness and I'm sure Louis must, must have had a charming sweet side to him too because actually I mean Marie Antoinette and he um although I don't think they were passionately in love they certainly I mean, they got along quite well together and I, and I think there was definitely that that side to him. But I think as a historical person I mean uh, supposedly the reason why he was so screwed up is he he was really isolated growing up. He had a tutor who somehow was a uh, uh, um, male tutor, um, who I think may have been a cardinal or some sort of religious person, anyway, who really isolated him, and he just really, uh, shockingly, did not have much social experience with anybody.
1: Sure. Yeah. Well, back on the costumes yes. mean, for a second. Um, <laughs> the uh,
2: the costumes, uh, Louis' costumes, to me, they didn't seem
1: particularly too small, and that's that was interesting that he he makes a point, or the actor makes a point of saying you know, maybe he requested it. His pants are too small. Um, maybe, <laughs> but yeah, it, to me they looked like it fit right, and maybe yeah. that's because, you know, as a historical costumer you want that constricting close to the right. skin as you can possibly get from your historical costumes. If they have any kind of ease in them, any mm-hmm. kind of modern ease, you know it's, it's not
0: Right,
2: <laughs> right, and what he may have perceived as being baggy, right, or, or right. being normal, we would per- right. as customers perceive Certainly. as being baggy. And, right. and
0: remember too, if he gained a lot of weight right. for this, I mean, he's now totally not able to judge his size. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. true. Yeah. He didn't look particularly
1: big to me. No, I, he didn't. You
0: know, he he's he, a cutie I mean, pie. he looked pudgy. <laughs> uh, uh, you
1: know, yeah, yeah.
0: dolly the maybe. role. Yeah, do yeah. yeah, yeah. I, I mean. I don't I haven't seen him he the wasn't fierce. the last Let's thing I saw on him was freshmore no. <laughs> and he was a pudgy little kid yeah, so that yeah. was like five years ago or something Right. Um, but anyway I thought that was that was really you know he I think he did a, an excellent job oh and if you get the DVD check out the Cribs MTV Cribs episode with Louie. <laughs> it's hella funny <laughs> <laughs> it's really cute can we get the
1: thing? yo, like, yo. Yeah. She, just,
2: she just flashed a gang symbol did, I want you yeah. all to know that <laughs> It's awesome. One thing I just wanted to say back to your original question, which was about 10 minutes ago, which of, was there anything that stood out <laughs> particularly? I have to say um, very few costumes actually stood out to me mm-hmm. as, oh, my God, that's the one. And sometimes I will watch movies, and I will say, oh, my God, I have to have that costume. And I have actually mm-hmm. made a costume from the movie. I made the Comtesse de Polignac's uh, chemise gown that she wears when they're running around the, uh, the like Amo village. Yeah, at the Trianon. Um, it was more the overall Swathe of it all. Just yards and yards of silk taffeta, the colors. I'm just thinking of the colors, the scenes where mm-hmm. the, the marchande des Modes is coming and is showing them all the different taffetas and they're picking the trims, and, and the masquerade ball where it's just all mm-hmm. these swirling colors. And if you actually stop and look at them, especially, I mean, they're extras costumes, and that's to be expected, that there's sort of more issues in terms of historical accuracy with the extras costumes, lots of dresses that lace up the back when nothing would have laced up the back except maybe court gowns, and they're not court gowns, etc. But the the beautiful palette, the lushness, just yards and yards and yards of silk taffeta everywhere, that was what I loved. And then the chemise dresses, yards and yards of, of you know, really fine muslins and all those sorts of things. And then, you know, in the sadder scenes later in the film where the costumes get darker and all all that stuff again, um, but th- this overwhelming sense of decadence and luxury is what struck me about the costumes, less so than individual ones. I will say
1: um, one of the costumes that did strike me particularly was the, uh, one of the anglaises, the blue anglaise with, that's all um, polonaised up in the back and something that Kendra and I when we watched the movie I saw it the first time at Kendra's place um, a while back but it was it struck us as it was just the sheer amount of fabric that went into that dress usually we think of a polonaise I mean, we're talking historical accuracy here sorry uh, it, it's its kind of a, a very fitted you know type of outfit we don't add a lot of fabric
2: to the skirt and well, this... especially in length usually yeah. you make it ankle length right. and then you pull it up those right. dresses obviously had a huge train exactly. on them and then were pulled up so that the and polonaise I... went to about ankle length and it's just this beautiful Swab it was the fabulous. Fabric. Yeah, it
0: was fabulous. Yeah, the volume, <laughs> the volume, and yeah. a lot of those gowns really just mm-hmm. showed, and and that emphasized the the luxuriousness and the and, mm-hmm. and the decadence. I, I mean, it goes it goes back to this
1: conspicuous consumption, conspicuous
0: consumption, which to me goes back to the eighties, <laughs> <laughs> the nineteen eighties. That's true. Um, yeah. Which was you know this massive decade of conspicuous consumption, and and to me the 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 two scenes that always Stood out, and always, I should say, I, this, is, this is my second viewing. I saw in the theaters, and I saw it mm. here on DVD. Um, the I want candy scene with the shoes. Mm. The shoe shoes, porn, the shoes, the shoes, the <laughs> shoes, converse. The, the shoes, the shoes, the shoes, and then the yards of fabric. And they're just uh, buying all and the... And eclairs
2: and cakes, and uh, things like that. Cakes and cakes. And Sex.
0: <laughs> yes. It is. It's just, it's total porn for... It's girl porn, you know. And it, it's costume, really costume porn. porn, yeah. Well, I mean, it's girl yeah. porn. No, girl no porn. I it's say it is girl shoes and yeah. food. And, <laughs> it's shoes and food. And fabulous dresses. throw handbags in there and I'm, I'm I mean, it's, it's like sex, it's sex in the city circa 1780, you know? <laughs> yeah. And it's it's just this kind of, oh, my God. I mean, how, how much more decadent can you get than just, like, shoes and shoes and, and eclairs and shoes and eclairs and shoes and eclairs? You know, throw in a Cosmo, and you've got Carrie Bradshaw. Yay! And it's just, it's insane. And then the other scene is is the masquerade ball, which, you know, for me, of course, because they're dancing to music that I personally love and would love to dance to, that's fabulous. But there, it's also this pure decadence, and then they've got masks, and it's costume.
2: In a gorgeous building.
0: And, of course, you know, we're, it's funny, because we're costumers, and they're in costume, you know, Mm. in air quotes here, costume, um, so it's this kind of whole meta thing. And I, I love, I love, <laughs> the, I love the historical idea of costume when historical, when you get to see what a historical era's idea of dressing up in costume is, mm-hmm. um, because it's it just, it's an, it's amusing to me because, you know, we think, oh, well, we're costumers. we're the only ones who dress up in fancy funny, dress, and yeah. funny clothes, you know, and right. dress up funny and fancy dress and things. But you know they put on masks and they put in extra stuff in their wigs and they wear, slight they wear clothes that they wouldn't wear these clothes every day. Mm-hmm. This is this is not their regular stuff. This right. is you know their outrageous clothes, and um, and they're having this big huge party and it's just the most wonderful scene. Sign me up seriously. <laughs> it's, Get in line. It, it, it's it's it, that's yeah that one's my crazy ass dream. Um, and it's just so beautifully done. It really is. It really is beautifully done. You don't see scenes like that in movies. Very you should often.
1: see more see more scenes like that in movies. Mm-hmm. I, I made yeah. an emphatic statement. There. Uh,
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I can't remember the last scene like uh-huh. that I saw in a movie. Yeah. Um, and you know, and I would I would say you know to me as far as I know, I mean, that seems fairly historically accurate. Mm-hmm. You know, they did have big crazy ass parties like that, and they have in really every era. And the the, the gist of it would be, you go you you put loads of extra crap on your fanciest duds and put a mask on it. Right. Mm
2: -hmm. The more fabulous, the better. Right. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm a firm believer in that. Yeah. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, I would like to say, uh, I wasn't really that interested in the 18th century um, until this film, right around the time this film came out. So it sort of of coincided with the film um, coming out and, and... circumstances around my costuming friends we um, will suck her into the 18th century yes we and well it. I have been sucked in I've, I've gotten you know well he's, those yes. who are at costume college this year may have remembered a certain robot la française uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, I really think that this movie is uh, for me it's a good gateway film it's a good gateway film into the 18th century I think it captures the the essence of the 18th century better than uh, any film I've seen so far that's set in the same era uh,
2: well, but also, I think, I almost think of it as like a great, I mean, I think we need to debate maybe later <laughs> um, whether or not it's a good movie and whether or okay, not we like okay. it. Yeah. But, I mean, for me, it's the absolute costumer's wet dream costume yeah. porn. It's oh, all yeah. I've ever wanted in a costume movie. It's, how many, I mean, how long is it, what? It's a couple hours, right? Yeah, it's I mean, two it's and, a and a half. half or three. It's two and a yeah, half, just no, th- not
0: three. But okay,
2: it's, it's long yeah. and it's completely filled with just decadent, beautiful, cover, <laughs> fabulousness for hours. And that's all, you know. I, I yeah, I'm just so okay.
0: Well, I, I think I, I think we should debate about the movie's quality itself because I will I will put this out here. Um, as a movie, um, I give it maybe a B minus because as a costume movie. It rates higher to me because yeah, it is it is costume porn, hardcore. You know, like double triple X costume porn. <laughs> uh, you know, not sweaty costume porn. Like <laughs> I can just, you know, Small
2: children look away. Yeah,
0: yeah. Seriously, it's it's big dildos and everything. Uh, did I just make this? We need to put an explicit. Tag I think on this? you
1: know we were trying not to go okay, there, but well, it's okay. <laughs> sorry.
0: Um, it is serious costume porn, but as a movie. As much as I like what it does for um, really, to me, the whole kind of 80s isolation, um, growing up in a bubble kind of uh, parallel, I really think Sophia Coppola needs a better editor. <laughs> uh, watching it in the theater, there were big gaps where I thought, uh...
2: Uh, <laughs> uh, dot 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 dot.
0: Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> Picture Tristan's face. Seriously, I, I really, <laughs> I really needed that. I needed a, a, a good twenty minutes could have been cut out of that for watchability's sake. For mm. as far as story and tightness, the dialogue. There's no dialogue. It's, it's really, really poor. Um, <laughs> it's like fifteen. If you minutes if you went dialogue. in without knowing the history much about Marie Antoinette, I think you're going to be kind of screwed. Like, I I watched with my husband, who knows the basic history, but he hasn't read, you know, big, fat biographies and all this stuff. And he was kind of like, so did she really screw that guy? And why did they not, why did her and the king not have sex for all this time? And what was the real problem? And, you know, all these questions that are kind of pussy-footed around and not there's no dialogue that explains it and there's not really action in the film that explains it I mean admittedly she wasn't getting any action which was part of the problem but there's a lot of plot that is just not there now I adore <laughs> so that would be my critique of the film as a film
2: now I adore the film and on a completely purely emotional level because it's Everything I've ever wanted in a costume movie, it's a subject I adore and I know a lot about. Um, And it's, it's, it's sort of putting on film my every costume fantasy. I can say for the average person, for my mom, yes, it would probably have been too long. It would have been probably too draggy. Um, I think it would be interesting to compare with something like Gosford Park for the sort of impressionistic, um, sort of off the cuff, not, you know, not having a really, st- I mean, although Gosford Park actually had a really strong yeah. through plot, um, yes. but in terms of the dialogue. So I think that's a bad, sorts- com- bad comparison because okay. Gosford
0: Park has witty dialogue and a great plot. It's snappy. It, it So, yeah.
2: Well, I think, but it's still the, the impressionistic and the sort of the naturalism of the dialogue, that sort of thing. Um, uh it, I was going to say something that maybe a little bit more on the same
1: level in terms of like dialogue and, and plot pacing would have been um, persuasion. You know, the, mm. yeah, the, the, which were, 95, 95 version, version yeah.
2: with what's her name? Yeah. <laughs> See, I really loved how it took uh-huh. its time. And again, but that's yeah. on a purely emotional level right. for myself. And I agree yeah. that the average person might not have adored that. And I also think that the average person might have needed, you know, certainly it would be helpful to have a whole lot more context. Um, at the same time, I think that you can argue, and I would argue, that this film is trying to do what um, other very debatable films like uh, the <laughs> Shekhar Kapoor Elizabeth is trying to do, which is trying to boil down the essence of a historical person or incident or time period and translate that to a modern audience. And I think that will make everybody grown who's listening to this, and I know it too. But there's something to be said for it. There's something Mm -hmm. to be said for my sister is not going to listen to this podcast, thank God, Um, (laughs) would not get Elizabeth, would not get Marie Antoinette, you know, as people, if you told her anything about board, wouldn't get it, wouldn't understand it, doesn't care about the historical context or the constraints that that person lived in. So taking the essence and saying, okay, for what you can understand, let's boil it down. This is what it was about. I think it does very well at that. I would
1: I would agree with Kendra. Um, now it's kind of interesting in that I have, you know, previously admitted that um, 18th century was not my thing uh, until very recently. I knew the gist of Marie Antoinette um, and uh, gist of the era, and so watching this film, it did not answer the questions that you know I actually had to go read the, the biography, uh, several different biographies, in fact, after this movie came out, uh, raised a lot of questions. So. Um, I had, it did, it did spark an interest in me to go and learn more, which I think is, is also kind of the, I'm beginning to understand that about a lot of movies that are coming out in, uh, in, uh, you know, Hollywood recently and recent memory, um, that it's, it's not, it's not about telling the story as accurately as possible. It's about giving you, an impressionistic painting. You know, it really comes back to that. If you take a Monet and you look at it up close, it's nothing, but you step away from it and you can see the picture. And right.
2: and, and I think <laughs> as historians, I think uh-huh. many of us are, um, and I think that we have that sort of that, that desire for education. You know, mm-hmm. you look at something like that's right. and you're like, well, wait, well, but her, Marie Antoinette's life was interesting enough. Why can't we educate people about who she really was? The reality is I come back again to my sister, who is not the least bit interested in history. She loves to shop, you know, all those kinds. of. She's a very sort of modern, normal girl. She's never going to give a rat's ass about Marie Antoinette. And I would say Marie Antoinette has been so vilified for Mm -hmm. very political reasons that has not changed. I mean, how many people have you talked to about this movie who were surprised that she didn't say, let them eat cake? I mean, the fact that that has still held to this day when she never said that. And in fact, there was some queen or somebody, duchess, 50, 100 years ago before her who was reported as saying it. I think there's something to be said for taking the essence of this woman and uh, in a a sense sort of repairing her reputation a little bit because for all of her faults, and there were many, she got a pretty shitty hand dealt to her. Uh, she had certain constraints she had to live within. She tried her best, which admittedly was, you know, was not fabulous. And then it all, you know, the, the sort of constraints she had been given in her life, suddenly the, everything changed. The rules changed on her. You know, and she ended up with her head chopped off and is still vilified to this day. So to my mind, there's something very, actually, it's cheesy to say, but something noble about going back and saying, you know what, she really wasn't that horrible of a person. She's a little misunderstood, a little young, a little inexperienced, all those mm-hmm. kinds of things.
0: Yeah, and that's one of the things I did like about this movie and why I I still wish there was a little bit better editing uh, because the parts that really do shine are things like the the introduction, the first part, where it shows that Marie was just a pawn. She was just a piece of meat to be traded and cementing a deal between Austria and France. Uh, And then when she gets to, to Versailles, she's in this really crappy marriage that isn't working out through no fault of her own and all the things that happen to her, she doesn't have a lot of control over. And I think that's one of the really strong, strong points that comes across. It shows her life, uh, parts of her life that you just don't hear about very much that, you know, you you hear, you know, you hear the crappy stuff. You hear that, oh, she was a spendthrift and she didn't give a crap about the the peasants and and you know they killed her and yay isn't that great um you don't hear her side of the story and this really did tell her side of the story and that was what sofia coppola set out to do what she wanted to do tell it from marie antoinette's point of view as a human being as yeah. an individual human being as a person yeah from what she saw what she felt and she really got that point across and i, and I think the film really does succeed in that in that respect um, I just think it would be a little more accessible to the general mainstream audience if it were a little, a little better edited perhaps and had maybe a little bit stronger dialogue, yeah. um, just as a film itself. Again, as a costume film, Major props up, definitely. Yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, and I would say I would have a hard time recommending it to my sister. She'd probably get bored by it if it had been better edited. Then probably I would. But to any customer, if you haven't seen this, then you know, then get your
0: ass go off, see it. Sorry, <laughs> ass off the, off we're the not, couch, listening to this stupid podcast. <laughs>
2: get the goddamn
0: DVD because we're not having
2: it. pink drinks until you've seen this. That's yes. right. Thank you. No cosmos for you.
0: No. Wait. What? No. No. We're having no, pink no, drinks no, 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 until
2: you've seen so, this movie. We're
0: not waiting for you. No, we're having pictures. Yeah, we're having it without you. <laughs> Stop recording this damn thing. Can right. we uh, mention we are not drunk?
1: We're okay. not.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Many of you have only seen us in that state? Yes. We this we is are also not in the right opposite now. of that. This has been a perfectly sober podcast. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> so, okay. So, I think we've kind of um, anything else we'd like to, to mention about uh, the movie?
2: I'd like to talk about his, how historically accurate the costumes were. And okay. I, again, I think, I mean, we've touched on that when we went You're back right. talked about the pink and all those kinds of things. Um, again, I mean, I think that um, overall, a, a B plus, but there were certainly a decent number of elements that were off um, uh, for example, the wedding dress with the um, the really low slopy panniers um, a lot of hated it. <laughs> it, it, it it was just weird it looked like it hung really it hung really it, weird on it her made her look like she had this really long torso yeah but, yeah like a she was basically a stick with some weird sort of things hung off the side Curtains. of her um I think there were way too many anglaises early on, yes. and, and I wasn't convinced. I mean, in the 1770s, I think you would have been seeing on furrow backs mm-hmm. with the, the pleats sewn down mm-hmm. um, and cut into the skirt rather than the separate cutaway back. And there was definitely a lot of my, my one pet peeve was a lot of panniers with fitted back dresses. And as far as I am aware, I am 99% sure of saying that you would never have seen panniers with a fitted back dress. That's a good question. I actually was wondering about that recently. Yeah, so was I. Uh, pretty sure. Mm-hmm. Although... I mean, Sally Queen could contradict me, so Sally, if you're listening. Although it was interesting <laughs> that
0: all, all the servant girls were wearing uh, the little... Pet and lairs. and Well, the with, jacket... And panniers.
2: Yeah, a pet and l'air being the sort of cut-off robe, all right. the frances or sackback dress with panniers. Well, with a pet and lair would have been worn right. with panniers. They, were all, um,
0: so, the, they j- so they were right.
2: Yeah, yeah and they, jackets came in as a, yeah. middle, as a lower class and then a middle class fashion, and yeah. then became fashionable in the 1780s, um when the sort of informality of costume took off. Um, so those those are my big pet peeves. Again, on extras, things like uh, back lacing on dresses, nothing closed in the back in the 18th century, um, you know, stripes uh, on the sleeves. Oh, go. That going to be my thing. No. <laughs> I, mean, I,
0: I noticed the one thing, and and this uh, thanks to Sally Queen, um, she in uh, a uh, lecture at, at Costume College a year ago had mentioned how Stripes on 18th century gowns would tend, would, would pretty much always be uh, horizontal the across sleeve. the sleeve because it saves fabric mm-hmm. and you would just never waste that mm-hmm. much right. fabric to go uh, vertically mm-hmm. uh, from the shoulder to mm-hmm. the
2: wrist. You do we, see vertical in the late 1780s when they start to do the long sleeve to the wrist, um, although it's a very interesting cut because it's literally, it's sort of cut almost in an L shape. So it's straight up and down on the upper arm, and then you kind of get a bias on the lower arm. But again, that's a late 1780s, yeah. and that's not what they were doing and, in and this film. Yeah, in
0: this film, they were... Not always, but very, very frequently going up and down, or sometimes on the bias, which you just then nobody cut on the bias back then. I mean, that'd be yeah, down—that's no, a so, waste of fabric. Yeah,
1: I would like to say one good thing. Mm-hmm. Um, well, not like you guys are knocking it or anything like that. But we hated it. Yeah, we, it, it sucks. It. We decided we don't like this movie anymore. Uh, yes. One thing that I really found really uh, gratifying uh, from the historical accuracy standpoint <laughs> is the one of the scenes where they're um, they're fitting the dresses on her. And you see how they've fitted the sleeves? Um, they've sewn the sleeves on her dress under the arm side, and then the top of the uh, sleeve is undone. And what they would have done, of course, is to fold it over the top of the uh, the shoulder piece on the bodice and stitch it down from the top. And I was like, "Hey, historical accurate detail! Thumbs yeah. up." And seeing <laughs> it in action was perfect. Yeah. Cool. yeah, I was yeah, like, I "That was that was for it, like, me." Yeah. Sophia yeah. Coppola put that in there for people like me who <laughs> right. would go,
2: "Oh, cool!" Right. So. Yeah. Before. I love the Chemise dresses and I loved mm-hmm. I mean everything was of course over except for the wet the, the wedding dress was over really great silhouette, mm-hmm. good great corsetry, um panniers, all those kinds of things. Um the Chemise dresses I loved that they're wearing them properly over stays with lots of petticoats, all those things. I love the little overgowns, the robe, all the turks over the Chemise dresses, that sort of thing.
0: Uh, one thing about the makeup, I thought mm. that was kind of interesting. They there was kind of if you look closely, um you really only see the old women wearing the really heavy makeup. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's a very makeup. conscious uh, separation choice. yeah that shows the older women are wearing that kind of really kind of almost cliche what you think of when you think of French court aristocracy makeup with the super white and the big red rouge mm-hmm. And you see that and you can see it in a lot of the crowd scenes like at the church and um, especially at the church when there's the one old lady nodding off. Um, and Marie's laughing and she's poking the, who, who is it, Lambelle, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, you can you can see lots of the older women, they're wearing that really heavy, but Marie never does, and Lambelle and, and Polignac and all them. They're not wearing the super heavy. Mm-hmm. They're wearing, you can definitely tell, they're wearing rouge and all that, mm-hmm. but it's not the really heavy stuff. That, so that's a very definite
2: artistic choice, art, artistic right. choice yeah. to,
0: to show who's the old guard, and who's the young, fashionable set. One
1: thing I would like to just jump in really fast with the makeup is they did not necessarily, at least not to my eye, fall prey to the Hollywood, um, let's put the, you know, leading ladies in the modern makeup yes thank
2: you for the no eyeliner i mean i thought yeah they were actually pretty good they had the red the reddish colors around the eye they Mm -hmm. definitely had mascara which debatable whether or not they they darkened eyelashes in the period they had the rouge again it was a light and a more mm -hmm. naturalistic look which i think would have been more appropriate for the sort of later 1780s and and i think also
0: kirsten dunst is being blonde i mean.
2: Yeah. You could see her were, roots. Her <laughs> would have shown up. Yeah, definitely. She have something yeah, right yeah. There. You know, one thing yeah. I noticed, and I only saw this for the first time this time, did you notice um, the powdering, which apparently they did the powdering of the mm-hmm. hair with um, spray on uh, dry shampoo. But did you notice that she had a line of powder across yes. t- on her scalp along I saw that. her hairline? Oh, and see I that. thought that was very interesting because they would have worn a cone around their yeah. face. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure it wouldn't have exactly matched the hairline. So yeah. it's interesting. You could see a little bit of powder on her skin right next to her hairline on her forehead.
0: Well now that's interesting because at least one of the shots in the behind the scenes uh, featurette uh, when they were it showed her showed her being powdered, but they didn't they were they, she were, was, they didn't have a cone, she was just kind of holding <laughs> her hands over her head and I was thinking, Well that's dumb, why don't they put a cone and put a paper cone over her head which she wouldn't get stuff in her face?
2: Apparently that's too complex of technology. Yeah, you know. <laughs> anyway.
0: Um, I, I think, you know, it, it did look really good. I, I it was That was eye candy. Nice. And, yes. I, again, I think the hair and stuff, it got the got the message across. Mm-hmm. Uh, any last comments about the movie? Loved it. Loved it. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. So um, why don't we close this out with um, some recommendations of resources. So if you are interested in Marie Antoinette and the 18th century and want to get more into it, we're going to mention some books, websites, stuff like that, um, so you can get uh, a little bit more behind the scenes into the action. Who wants to go first? I'll go first. I raise my hand. Uh, <laughs> first off, for websites,
1: I want to say that the one of the best resources out there for 18th century costume happens to be Kendra's fabulous website, uh, the Real <laughs> Women's Clothing mm-hmm, uh, yes. Database. I'll and second that. On, yeah, on demodecouture.com. Is that correct? Yes. Recently changed URL. Um, for books, I brought three books because I couldn't decide which one, um, and they're each equally fabulous. Uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> the first one I want to talk about uh, briefly is the fa- book Fashion from the uh, collection of the Kyoto uh, Costume Institute in Kyoto, Japan. Um, the Costume Institute has just an amazing collection of 18th century dresses. Primarily French. Primarily French, yes. And it's just, it's utter eye candy costume porn. I mean, it's a book you should really get.
0: Uh, if you want to just look at fabulous, beautiful French court uh, court costumes, and just a note: I'm a cheapskate when it comes to books. <laughs> I I finally bought that one; uh-huh. and it's so worth it. <laughs> yeah. so
2: and it goes: it's it's okay. extant garments. It's it's, mm-hmm. it's it's like a phone book of extant garments right. up through the 20th century, right? Yeah, to so the yeah. 1970s, to 80s, yeah. yeah. actually, I think. Because mm-hmm. there's
1: a, a lot of it's uh, worth it if, if you do York anything
2: York. from <laughs> 1750 to the yeah. modern era. A ton of the great
0: Victorian stuff mm-hmm. as well, but the 18th century is really well represented. Right,
1: and and so and then that one that's really great. Um, The next one I wanted to recommend was Costume Close-Up, which is a very hard to find book. Um, Apparently it's out of print right now. uh, By Linda Baumgarten and John Watson with Florine Carr. Um, This, if I'm not mistaken, this is from Williamsburg. Colonial Williamsburg. Yeah, it's it's put together by some people from Colonial Williamsburg and it's got diagrams, um, cutting diagrams for things like uh, the robe a la française with or excuse me, robe a la anglaise with the enfereau pleating when I went and made mine. Uh, this was my primary resource um, for figuring out how to do that. So, And it's got everything from corsets to chemises to breeches to you name it.
2: The most useful mm-hmm. thing I actually found in that book, and I would recommend it for anyone interested in 18th century, is the fact that it has a short section at the beginning that actually talks about how 18th century dresses were constructed. And right. then with each of the patterns for individual garments, they talk about how it's constructed. Mm-hmm. And 18th century garment construction is so different from Victorian or modern. Um, that It's the first thing that finally helped me wrap my brain around that.
1: Yeah, that's what exactly say, what I my reaction to it was, was it just suddenly made sense. And so that's a uh, costume close-up. And then the last one was Historical Fashion in Detail from the 17th and 18th centuries. This is the Victorian Albert Pink Corset Book. Porn! Uh, <laughs> it's got the, uh, the beautiful picture of the uh, 17th century pink stays from the V&A. Um, it's, it really is just detail. You pick a page. Open a page, and there's just close-up detail of just amazing work in it, um, like it says on the cover from the 17th and 18th centuries. So if you ever want to know the detail work that goes into these things, just get this book. It, you won't be disappointed.
0: All right. Well, I'm going to go with an obvious choice, but I think it's a really essential one. It's uh, Marie Antoinette, A Journey by Antonia Fraser, And as I mentioned before, this is the biography that um, this movie was inspired by. Sofia Coppola read this, this book and uh, based a lot of the facts of the screenplay on this biography. And I really, I've read a few of Antonia Frazier's uh, historical biographies. And I really love her work. It's very, very, very well researched. And I think she really gets into the heads of um, these historical uh, people. And she does so with with facts. I mean, you know, that's really all you can do. But she she tries to present the facts and lay them out in such a way that... You can kind of understand what was probably motivating uh, the actions that people took. And for someone like Marie Antoinette, um, it really helps to, uh, to to see what she went through, what her childhood was like, you know what was what was um, her childhood in Vienna like compared to um, Versailles at the time. I think that uh, contrast is really key in understanding. What her life was like, and what you know her reaction to things were like, um, and you know, also having that background before watching or rewatching this movie really fills in a lot of the details that aren't there. Um, so you know, this is this is I think you know the best and most accessible biography uh, to to start with. So you know, pick that one up. I also like. How um, she really lays out in great and gory detail how it's quite possible that um, Marie Antoinette and Count Fersen could very well have had sex at these dates and at these times, and perhaps this child could have been conceived or could not have uh, by Fersen. I always person. kind of wondered that
1: if one of her um, kids ended th-
0: up being Fersen. <laughs> well, it's just through she ah. makes she lays out when it if it was going to happen, it could have happened here. Or here, but not here. You know, it's like, wow, that's go Marie Antoinette. That's specific. So, I
2: hope she did. Yeah, yeah. I hope so, she did. She needed it.
0: Know, there's, you're never going to know, of course. Uh-huh. But hey, there's there's the facts of when it was possible. Uh-huh. So it's it's a really excellent biography.
2: Um, and just a quick follow up. I think anybody who is. Uh, willing to read through, you know, a a biography and interested in fashion should follow uh, the uh, Marie Antoinette journey with Queen of Fashion, What Marie Antoinette Wore to the Revolution. Um, It's similar length. It's a big hefty nonfiction book that's all um, about, it's basically about the life of Marie Antoinette and what she wore, but less sort of specifically what she wore and more what, what did it mean? What was the sort of political and social significance? Because I have to say, actually reading that book, made things gel for me in a way that they hadn't just reading the biography. But that's not my resource. My resource, I'm going to go a bit more esoteric. It's called Gazette des Atours de Marie Antoinette. And don't worry, we will put that uh, title up on our uh, website, which we'll talk about. Um, And what it is, basically, it's published by the National Archives, and it's a reproduction of Marie Antoinette's swatch book from 1782. And by swatch book, I mean that they kept books with swatches of all of the fabrics from her dresses, and every morning they would take out these books and Marie would, Antoinette would pick which dresses she wore, wanted to wear by sticking a pin in them. Um, it's a beautiful reproduction. One half of it is basically um, sort of, you know, an uh, analysis of, of her wardrobe and, and talking about the, the book itself. It's in French. Um, if you read French, um, uh, which I do, it, it's very interesting. If you don't, that's fine. Because the other half is literally a reproduction of the swatch book. Um, and, and I can't tell you how, what a beautiful reproduction it is. But to see the real fabrics that she wore, um, first of all, real 18th century fabrics, to see which ones were made into which kinds of dresses, which ones were reading goats, which ones were, uh, you can hear me, sorry, flipping mm-hmm. through it, which ones were levites, all those sorts of things. Were what? Uh, levites, it's a kind of dress. Come to costume college <laughs> next year, I'll tell you about them. Um, so to see which fabrics were used for which styles. But then also that uh, the, these were Marie Antoinette's clothes is really amazing. And, uh, and looking at the swatches, it's very surprising. I mean, again, it's from 1782, so fashions had changed some. Um, but it's not the sort of ostentatious, uh, over-the-top, heavy silks that you know, sort of typically would associate. Lots They're, of ecot. Lots of ecot, <laughs> uh, lots of light colors, mm-hmm. light fabrics, um, uh, and, and it's just an absolutely gorgeous reproduction, and I highly recommend it for anyone. Um, it's probably expensive because you can only get it from France. I would recommend going on Amazon.fr um, or go to bookfinder.com and search for books in France, and you'll probably pay a decent chunk of money, but it's worth it.
0: All right. Well, those are some great places to uh, really get more in-depth with 18th Century and Marie Antoinette. We will uh, list all the details of this on our live journal community, which you can find at frockflix.livejournal.com. And that's where we'll post uh, about updates to our podcast, um, other information uh, about resources for this podcast and future ones, and uh, where you can join in the conversation, ask us questions, give us feedback. We'd appreciate your feedback. Uh, let us know what you think, what you um, can suggest uh, topics for future podcasts, uh, throw rotten tomatoes, give us virtual bouquets. Uh, toast us with virtual pink drinks you name it (laughs) Uh, we hope you've enjoyed our uh, premiere effort here and we hope you tune in next time any uh, closing words
2: Uh, watch the movie, it's fabulous absolutely, you've got to see this movie
0: well cheers, thanks so much and farewell au revoir